Hear the word of the Lord. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, God of light, transform, transform all of us by your word this morning. Uh, to be people who uh, love and adore you. Teach us and guide us by your Holy Spirit to be assured of our status as your beloved children, which has been secured for us by the gospel work of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I have a friend uh, who struggles with something called scrupulosity or religious OCD, or some even call it the doubting disease. And it's characterized by what's called intrusive thoughts. So a thought will pop in your head, and then you, regardless of whether that thought is actually true or not, you think it's true. And when it's particularly directed towards a religious sensibility or, or thoughts directed towards God, uh, you essentially fear that that thought is true, even if it's not, you know, some have described it as fearing sin where there is none. And so one example of kind of how the process of this would work for someone like my friend is let's say one night you're hanging out with your buddies and you're watching this cool action movie. Uh, and there's a sweet James Bond scene where a car goes flying off a cliff and blows up. You're like, ah, cool. But then the next day you're driving uh, up a mountain road and you, there's a little cliff over and you're like, Hey, if I just turn my steering wheel to the right a little bit, I just go off the cliff like in that movie. Well, for most of us, that thought would result in a reminiscing of whether you liked that movie or disliked that movie or whatever, and you'd move on with your life. With someone like my friend, that thought would get stuck in there. He would latch onto that thought and think, well, do I actually want to do that? Uh, it, it stirs a fear that the, the intrusive thought um, that you that is true despite all the proofs of reality uh, that would say otherwise. And so imagine my friend reading through a passage like 1 John. So you get to this part where it says, if you love the world or the things in the world, uh, you don't have the love of the Father. Right? These things are uh, contrasted. And so he'll, he'll think on his life and think, I know of times when I've loved the world in these ways. And so then he'll, he'll, he'll latch onto that and think, well, maybe I don't have the love of the Father in me. Maybe I'm not secure in Christ. Now, I'm talking about scrupulosity or this doubting disease because it's essentially just an intensified kind of extreme example of something that we all struggle with. So imagine uh, an apple tree. And for, for, for our purposes, the two important parts that we're going to think about are the, are the fruits of the apple tree and the roots. And so our temptation, 
using this illustration is, is that we're tempted to believe that the fruit of our lives uh, establishes and is actually what constitutes the health of our roots instead of the other way around. In, in other words, we're often tempted to think that our failures and sins um, uh, show us that we don't actually belong to God. But this is exactly why I think John puts this passage right here in this book. He is saying that we have true assurance that the love of the Father is in us. We have true assurance that the love of the Father is in us. And he gives us both the root of that assurance and the fruit of that assurance. Look at verses 12 to 14 with me. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And this is his first point, the root of our assurance. And what I mean by root is the how or the why of our assurance. The foundational truths that answer the questions people most often ask when it comes to our relationship with God. How, you know, particularly with this passage, how do I know that the love of the Father is in me? And John takes up the task of answering these questions by telling his original audience and all of us by extension what is objectively true. That we are children, fathers, and young men. And John... Since John addresses these three groups of people, or these three titles, assures them of the truth associated with them, then goes through the list again, um, we're just going to go through each title once, talking about everything that's associated with title, through the, with each title through this whole thing. And these three titles, children, fathers, and young men, constitute the root of our assurance, the foundation of our confidence that the love of the Father is in us. John first addresses little children, and it goes on to talk about fathers and young men. And despite actually what it looks like, he's actually only talking about two distinct groups of people, um, which we'll get to in a second. But throughout this letter, John is consistently referring to all of his recipients as children or little children or beloved children. And so he's hinting, us, hinting to us here that when he starts this, this section by little children, he's actually referring to everyone. He's referring to all of us. So every person here, he's talking to, and by calling us little children, he's not necessarily referring to our maturity, but to our relationship with the Father, right? He's talking about us uh, being childlike, not childish. He's, he's, he's making a, a statement of who we are in regards to God the Father. And the truth that he associates with you as little children is that you have actually entered into a true, real living relationship with the Father. And, and from that idea flows what he says in verse 13. He says, I write to you because you know the Father, and the result of that is that you are forgiven for his name's sake. And this is the assurance. Have you been baptized into the church of God in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you believe the Apostles' Creed that we recite together every Sunday. Do you believe, like Paul says in Romans, that 
Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that in your heart? If so, John's talking to you. You are a little child of God. And, and that's the foundational root of assurance for all of us. You're a child of God and he's forgiven you. And not just some of the things you've done, but everything you've done. And then, and then next John goes to fathers. And this is where he actually starts talking about a, a distinct group among all of us, right? We're all children. He then talks about fathers. And where, where he's talking about children, he's, he's kind of referring to our relationship to God. Now he actually does go into the realm of maturity. He's talking about the, the more mature, the more spiritually seasoned among the church. And, and I do want to say, lest women think that you can just check out for this whole sermon, fathers means more mature women as well right? So stay tuned because this includes all of you older, more mature folks. You know, the, the implication is that you are ripe with knowledge and wisdom and experience, something that you just can't have if you're younger and less mature. And, and John says to you, church fathers and church mothers, that he's writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning, only to the mature does he give the exact same re reason for writing both times he mentions you. You know, with the mature, he's writing specifically because you know the eternal one. John Stott says, with advancing years, you have found a refuge in him who from everlasting to everlasting is God. You know, on top of just your, your, your first foundational assurance as children of the Father, you older folks have been given something extremely valuable you have first-hand experiential knowledge of a God who does not forsake you through your deepest sins and your most treacherous struggles. You know that God does not forsake you. You've actually experienced that. Your assurance is that you have a trial-tested knowledge and relationship with the one who is sure. And then John moves on to young men, also young women, this, the second distinct group of all of us little children um, is, is represented, is, uh, represents the less developed, less spiritually mature, even including myself in this. What this group generally lacks in knowledge and wisdom and experience makes up for in zeal and strength. You know, to you, young men and women, John says this, you are strong, the word of God is in you and you have overcome the evil one. Your spiritual strength is, is found not, uh, not in yourself. It's found in the word of God for which you are so passionate. Right? And that word of God is what has overcome the evil one. And we're, we're talking about the devil. We're talking about Satan, the evil one. And it's, John's not unclear here. You have overcome him. That's what he says. You have overcome him because you belong to Christ and Christ has overcome him. And anyone who knows me knows that this is one of my favorite themes in all of the scriptures, is the crushing of the head of Satan. And I, I, I think it should be one of everyone's favorite themes because it's incredible. Because as Jesus is the ultimate serpent crusher, Satan crusher, you get to follow in his footsteps, having overcome the evil one. Again, John Stott is helpful when he says that your conflict has become a conquest. You are plundering the enemy and tearing down his house. And the point is that your assurance in all of this, young men and young women, 
is that John kind of anticipates the doubt that comes from your lack of experience, right? When you, when you now have a, a season of sin or suffering, it is highly likely that it'll lead you to doubt your relationship to the Father. And, but even though you haven't weathered the things in the same kind of way that the, the older church mothers and fathers have, even, if, even though you haven't done that kind of in the long haul, you can have assurance that everything that is against you, everything you're experiencing now, your sin and your suffering, actually has been overcome and you have overcome it in Christ. Your assurance is the word of God and what he has done and what he is allowing you to partake in. And this, this is John's summary of the church. You're all little children. Some of you are the more mature children. Some of you are the less mature children, the young men, the, the, the passionate and the zealous, right? And the, the, the older are the wise and the experienced. But imagine if my friend, you know, my, my friend who struggles with scrupulosity, remember, imagine if he reads this and he just focused on this part of 1 John. That would be an incredible thing because what he's going to do is focus on his unchangeable relationship to the Father. Remembering that every sinful thought or deed that he has has already been overcome. It's already been taken care of. Right? He's forgiven. That's what it says. Little children, you are forgiven of all of your sins. And so the root of his assurance and therefore the root of your assurance, the root of all of our assurance is in specifically what God says is objectively true of you, that you are his children. And so we said, great, that's awesome. Um, I'm forgiven. I've overcome. I have experience. I can kind of just autopilot through life now. Um, but John would say, of course not. By no means would you do that. John is writing to assure the church of what's true so that the church might bear the appropriate fruit of assurance. Right? He, establish, he establishes the proper root so that we might bear the proper fruit. Now look at verses 15 through 17 with me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And this is John's second point, the, the fruit of your assurance. And what he's saying is, is the, the, the roots of your assurance begets the fruit of your assurance. And, and what I mean by fruit of your assurance, right? he's answering the question, what are we supposed to do once we're assured that we have the love of the Father in us. And his answer is really simple. Love the Father. Don't love the world or the things in the world. But John is juxtaposing loves. Well, loving the Father against loving the world. You know, the first section that we just talked about, uh, verses 12 through 14, he's saying, uh, he's writing to assure you that you have that love. In this next section, he's, he's contending with you to not turn that love toward the world. And the world that we're not meant to love, what he's saying, this idea of the world, is, is, comes right after we're told that the, over, the evil one has been overcome, 
right? The, the imagery that John has been using of light and dark in his letter so far is kind of becoming unveiled here a little bit, right? He's letting us into his imagery. He's saying that the world is Satan's place, his kingdom of darkness. He's saying that it's the structures of the world that have been organized against Christ under the dominion of Satan. And in, in verse 16, John continues showing us what loving the world looks like. This is what he commands us not to do. And he shows us exactly what it, he says, this is what not to do. He says, all of the world looks like these three things, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What he's saying is all sinful loves, all sinful desires fall into to these categories. You know, these characterize Eve's temptation in the garden. You know, Genesis 3, 6 says Eve saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, desire to make her wise, pride of life. Well, St. Augustine then sees these exact same categories summarized in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan. Okay, but then others will say, well, those are the same things seen in Israel in the wilderness going through uh, in, the, in the Exodus. And we'll say, of course they are. Because John is saying here, every single sin and temptation is summarized in these categories. So it shouldn't surprise us that from the first people, Adam and Eve, to us uh, now, we're experiencing the exact same temptations and sins. This is, this is the whole of what tempts us. And uh, Jay Adams gives us actually a helpful way to kind of organize these into three Ps that's helpful to remember. It's not perfect categories, but they do help us grab on uh, to the alliteration. So we have pleasure, possession, and position. Pleasure, possession, and position. Uh, uh, desires of the flesh kind of go with pleasure. You know, this is specifically referring to anything that deals with the senses, what's sensual. You know, with Eve, it could be food, you know, like that, or, or sex, or comfort, or ease. You know, referring to appetites of the body. That's kind of what this category is. Lust, lust of the eyes or desires of the eyes connects with possessions, having. This is driven by seeing and wanting. Unless any blind people out here think they can get away and never experience this one, it's not talking about necessarily physical sight, Right? It's, it's closest to the idea of you know, covetousness. Your heart sees and your heart wants. Um, is it wealth and riches? Is it that new iPhone? For me, right now, it's wanting to buy a great new house that's amazing and I never have to move again because uh, I hate moving. But it's really possible that actually my desire for that is actually driven by uh, des uh, desires of the eyes, lust of the eyes, rather than a love for God, often. The, next, the last one is the, is the pride of life. And this is kind of connected with the third P, position. Position in life. You know, if lust and desires of the flesh have to do with kind of your bodily appetites, what comes from within, and desires of the eyes have primarily to do with coveting the things that are without, the things in the world, then pride of life has primarily to do with your relationship to other people. You're, you're, the idea here is, is maybe glory is another way to think about this. We want glory. We want to be recognized. We want to be adored. We think we care about what other people think about us and how do I measure up to them. And so examine your heart. 
John guarantees you in the first chapter of this letter that you sin. And if you sin, you've done these things. Right? He says in, in, in 1 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, how does lust of the flesh, how, does, how, how do your fleshly desires play out in your life? Is it browsing things on the internet that you shouldn't? Is it overeating? Is it like me drinking way too many Mountain Dews to the certain detriment of my health? Um, how do you chase and pursue those fleshly pleasures? What about desires of the eyes? What alluring things of the world stir up that covetousness that you want, that you need this thing? Is it money or is it cars or is it you know, the newest gadgets? I have a buddy who used to collect really expensive, really nice shoes but he would never wear them because they might get dirty. I think that was mostly driven by this kind of idea. Um, you know, or the last one, how do you try to elevate yourself above others? How do you seek that position? You know, how do you grasp at glory in the world? Is it being cutthroat at your job just for you know, success or, or power? One of the biggest ways I've actually seen this play out is gossip. Right? You actually start tearing other people down so that you, you look way better in comparison to what you're saying about that other person. Or, or, or do you get angry or jaded when you don't get the love and respect you feel you deserve from your, your spouse or your children? Things like that. Now, if I were to end there and my scrupulous friend were listening, he would say, thanks, David, you have assured me that I don't have the love of the Father in me. Really thankful. You're the best. Um, but that's just not the case, right? J the whole reason John's writing this whole first section, the first section we read is because he knew he was about to write this section, right? My scrupulous friend would, would think that the fruit of his loving the world in, in these ways would prove that he's an unbeliever despite the fact, even as John says later in this this. this uh, letter in chapter five, he says, if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you are a recipient of God's eternal life. Okay. So how do you, they seem kind of contrary. How do you deal with this? How does my friend deal with this? But John is, is being clear, you know, as a child of God, if you love the world, if you sin, it does not mean that you don't have the love of the father. It does mean you have competing loves. You have loves that are clashing. But John's reason for laying out the root of assurance before telling us what the fruit of our assurance ought to be is not to make us doubt the root, but to animate the fruit. Remember the first thing that John says about all of you. You are little children whose sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That means when you give in to sinful pleasure, desires for possession, or undue position, you remain forgiven because you were united to Christ, who, we've already said, experienced the, the, the temptations that exemplify each of these three things. And he did that without sinning. And you were united to that one, the sinless one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, your sins are forgiven, all of them, because you are his child. You have no need to hide uh, throw on a fig leaf and hide from God like Adam and Eve felt like they needed to. Because much like what God did for them, 
He's done for you by crafting for you a robe of Christ's righteousness, right? Which frees you to move forward in loving the Father when you fail, even when you feel like hiding and sinking further into the shame of the world. As God's child, know that your sins of desires of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life have no power to affect your relationship with God. They have no penalty because that was taken by Christ. And the only thing that remains is the presence of the sin. But then John goes on to say, even that is not always going to be true. The presence of sin will pass away. In verse 17, John says, he says, the world is passing away along with its desires. He's saying, don't waste your time and your love on what has no future. He says, do the will of God and abide forever. And again, we'll ask, well, what is the will of God? And John over and over and over in this letter says, believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the will of God. And this faith is secured in you who are little children of God because you've been born of him. And if you've been born of him, if you're his child, you have the love of the father in you. And if we look even further a little bit, when we love the Father, we realize that we are graciously gifted with everything we were seeking in loving the world. Think, think about these questions. Is it actually always sinful to enjoy pleasure? Is it always sinful to want the gifts that God actually has put on the earth to gift us with? Is it always sinful to, to desire glory and position in the world? Well, the answer actually is no. It's not always sinful. Because lust of the flesh is just a disordered love for pleasure. Right? Scriptures say there are pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. That means it's not wrong to enjoy the pleasure of God. You know, in, in pleasure when received in, in the context of loving God preeminently is a great and good thing. You know, same with lust of the eyes. It's a disordered love for things. Right? It's when we love God's gifts more than God the giver. But when our loves are, are properly ordered, the scriptures say that we, the meek, will inherit the earth. That's a possession. And it's ours. And it's yours because you're a child of God. And that's good. And likewise with pride of life. Revelation says we're going to be reigning with God someday. And so properly ordered love, God first, and then seeking the position he gives is great because we will actually be in this glorious position of reigning alongside Christ the King. That's the best position anyone could hope for. And these are the kinds of things you receive as God's children and they abide forever, unlike the world which is passing away. And that's what John's getting at. So we've seen that in loving the Father through the Son, you exhibit the fruit of your assurance. And you have confidence that no matter how you fail or the depth of the rot in your roots, that you have an unchanging relationship to the Father. Your roots are secure. Little children, you know the Father and you are forgiven. Because of this, you have full assurance that the love of the Father is in you. 
Therefore, you, you have the freedom to repent, be reminded of what's really worth loving, which is the Father, and carry on. So remember your status as little children. That's what John's saying. Remember. That's actually going to animate your fruit. And, and church fathers and church mothers, remember that you know intimately the God who never forsook you and faithfully established for you the roots of your assurance, which are firmly fixed in your experience of the Father's loving kindness through even your deepest rebellions. And young men and young women, remember your strength is from the word of God. Remember that you've overcome the evil one regardless of what your current experience is falsely telling you right now. And for, for all of you, there is no need to doubt what God has caused you to be. So may the roots of your assurance, the confidence that you are these children, fathers, and young men, the confidence that you have the love of the Father, may that spur you on to daily cultivate the fruit of your assurance, your love for the Father, directing your will, desires, affections, and, and, and the, the, the deep love that you have directed towards not the world, but towards God the Father. Pray with me. Oh God, from whom all good and holy desires and, and works come, give us your peace, which the world passing away cannot give. Help us to set our hearts on you above all else. Defend us from fear of the enemy's accusations and our hearts' doubts. Lighten our darkness, uh, leading us, lead us in the paths of righteousness by your spirit for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.